Uh, these are the words of God. And, we go, uh, and when he got into the boat, that's Jesus, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the, the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, uh, to the country of the Gadarenes, uh, two demon-possessed men met him uh, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He then said to the paralytic, Rise Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, in the Bible. We thank you that we can study these words and know that they have authority, that they are truth, that they are light. And Lord, we just acknowledge how many times we've come to this book and it has uh, been able to speak comfort uh, into our lives, truth into our lives. It's uh, revealed the secrets of our hearts. And we ask that you would give us your spirit now uh, to open your word and to apply it into our, our, our lives, that you would lead us into repentance and faith, that you would lead us to our Savior, Jesus. And uh, so uh, we ask that you would be our teacher and may the words... Of our mouths, and, uh, the words of my mouth, and the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Um, so the uh, the passage I just re read it's a, it's a series of three episodes in the uh, ministry of Jesus. Uh, begins uh, with an incredible story about Jesus telling this windstorm to stop being so windy, and uh, the windstorm does it. It says, okay, I'll, we'll stop being, you know, it's like a father speaking to his child, and, it, and it, you know, he rebuked the windstorm, and it did what he said. And uh, which is interesting in and of itself, um, 
that Jesus can talk to windstorms and they do it. Um, but I, I think something that's maybe even more interesting, at, le- at least to me, is um, that uh, Jesus is in this boat with his disciples. They're in this boat, and the boat is being flooded by waves. And, um, and so his disciples come to him, and they wake him up and, and say, you know, we're dying out here, and you're sleeping. Can you help us, please? Which I, seems fairly reasonable. The boat's about to sink, and they're asking for some help. And uh, Jesus gets up, and he says, uh, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Which actually, in Greek, has a little more teeth than that. It's, it's more, why are you such cowards? You little face. Why? And he, it's almost like he calls him a name. You little face. Why are you such cowards? And, um, and now for most of us, when we're struggling with fear, these aren't generally the kinds of words that we're hoping to hear uh, from the Lord. Uh, why are you such a, such a coward? Right? Those aren't the kind of things that give us strength and encouragement and boost us up. You know, usually when we're struggling with fear, we're struggling with anxiety, kinds of things we want to hear is about Jesus bringing us in his arms and we're like a little child and he's going to care for us and he's going to speak kind words to us and speak tenderly to us, not... Uh, why are you such a coward? Now, the Bible does have lots of those tender words of, you know, come into my arms. The Psalms are full of things that God is a fortress. He's a hiding place for us. We hide under the shadow of his wings. And, you know, even in this passage, uh, I think we could take comfort just meditating on verse 26. And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Right? We could take much comfort just thinking of Jesus speaking into the storms in our life and bringing bringing a great calm. But I would say overwhelmingly, uh, when the Bible talks about fear, it is um, unsentimental. And and in in many ways, when the Bible talks to us about fear, it speaks, I would say, in kind of manly terms. It's very much like, be strong, you know, when Israel is going to go into the promised land and they're going into war and God's talking to to, uh, Joshua, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. And um, there, it, it speak, God speaks to us in his word, speaks to our fear, speaks to our anxiety with a command. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. Be strong and trust in God and know that he's with you. Now, um, it doesn't say, let me coddle the fear out of you. It simply says, stop fearing. Now, I imagine for many of us, we have different responses to that for those of us who struggle with fear. So, you know, some of us, if you hear the Bible, you come to a verse in the Bible that says, be strong and courageous. God is with you no matter what. Some of us hear that and we say, yeah, why am I, why am I so afraid? God's with me. I'm going to be strong and courageous. I'm going to make a courageous decision. But for others of us, if, if fear is something that is constantly running through your mind, you are gripped by anxiety. And the Bible just tells you, stop being afraid. You're going to hear that and you say, you know, if I could just turn it off, I would. You know, it's not like I can just stop doing it. You think I want to be afraid? You think I want to be a coward? It's just got a, a hold of me. And so for the Bible to just make a command, do not be afraid, or why are you such a coward, you know, seems to have no power in our life. So the question is, how do these, um, how do these things come together? If, um, if I can't just turn off my fears, turn off anxiety, how do I receive commands from the Bible that I should not fear and that I should not be afraid? 
Well, I think that uh, the, the, the key to that riddle is, comes at the end of this passage that I just read. We have a number of episodes where, where Jesus, is, uh, Jesus calms a storm and he casts out some demons and then he heals a paralytic. And then at the end of it, in uh, chapter 9, verse 8, it says this, When the crowds saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. It's very interesting. This passage begins with a very negative view of fear, and yet it ends by saying, actually, these people were doing the right thing. There was, there was fear. They were afraid, and they glorified God in their fear, which means that the Bible's answer to our fears and our anxieties are actually not that we should fear less, but actually, in some way, we should fear more. See, we bother ourselves with fearing about the events in our lives. We fear about what people are going to think of us. We fear about what, you know, what's going to happen with our job. Are we going to have enough money? And the Bible says these are all small things compared to who Jesus Christ is. And that the way for us to deal with fear is to have a growing awe and reverence for the size and authority of who Christ is. And when we learn the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the answer to the fear of men uh, the fear of the world, the, the fear of evil. And that's actually what it says, right? Because it says that they, uh, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Their fear transferred. And so, um, what this passage shows us is the authority of Jesus, kind of the size of Jesus. How we should kind of revere and be in awe of him. And when we're in awe of Jesus, this actually teaches us how to deal with most of the fears and anxieties that we deal with in our life. So, this morning, I want to look at three aspects of Jesus' authority that we see in this passage. We see that Jesus has authority over nature, Jesus has authority over evil, and Jesus ultimately has authority over love. Authority over nature, over evil, and over love. And what I'm hoping is we look at this and we see Christ's authority what it will lead us to in terms of, of fear is what, you know, Psalm 2 has a great line in the end of Psalm 2 where it says, rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. It's a great picture of what, when you begin to fear, fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the only fear that actually gives you life and freedom. All other fears will seize you up, it will grab a hold of you, and you won't be able to live, but the fear of the Lord actually sets you free. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. These three aspects of Jesus' authority. So first, Jesus has um, authority, authority over nature. Um, uh, he has authority over nature, right? He, he calms the storm. Now, um, you know, one of the questions that many modern people have about the Bible is, you know, the Bible has miracles in it. And, you know, we live in a scientific age, and, and how can we believe in miracles? And... Uh, you know, the, the fact is, you know, no scientist or lab experiment has proven that miracles are impossible. I, I, I don't see any logical reason why God could not do a miracle. And uh, that has not been disproved at all. But one of the things that's interesting, if you ever read about uh, Christian um, philosophy or metaphysics, it's actually very hard to define what a miracle is. What is a miracle? Because most of you, you know, you say, what is a miracle? You say, I think that's pretty easy to define what a miracle is. A miracle is a supernatural act of God, right? You know, God made this world, and it runs in a certain way. It's kind of like a clock. And then every once in a while, God will interject his power into the world, and he'll do something 
um, where his power is manifested and it's, uh, it's unusual. And that's what a miracle is. He does, you know, the world is kind of running according to the laws of nature and then God does something supernatural. But one of the issues with that is, is there's a, uh, in Colossians chapter 1, there is a verse that describes who Jesus is. It's actually a song, that, an early hymn that Paul records in, in Colossians chapter 1. And in that, it's describing Christ. And this is what, he, this is what Paul says. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. And what that says is that Jesus is not just the power that invented the universe, but he is actually the power that holds the universe together. He is sustaining the universe right now. So kids, let me tell you what that means. That means Jesus is holding the world together right now. So you look at me and you say, you know, why does my nose stay right there in my place, in my ears? Like, why doesn't my face just kind of melt off into a puddle of, you know, noses and flesh on the ground? Why does it do that? Why does my face not melt off? Jesus is holding my face together. And he's holding your face together. He's holding your arms and together. And, and when my words, why are my words, when I say things, they go from my mouth and you can hear them in your ears and you can understand them in your brain. It's because Jesus is holding together the air molecules and making everything travel from my mouth to your head. He's controlling everything. He's holding it all together. Every little thing that we see and experience, Jesus is holding together by the authority of his word and by his power. And so everything is enabled and carried out by authority of Jesus as the ruler of nature. This is what Christians believe. Jesus is the ruler of all of nature, um, which is an, incredibly, uh, an incredible view of the world we're living in. That means that the world we're living in is deeply personal, deeply intentional. It's much more like we're living in, a, in, in artwork, that there is a great artist and that everything we experience, everything that we happens is uh, the mastermind and the authority and the care of a great artist. And so the reason why it's hard to define what a miracle is is because if we say a miracle is, this, is the power of God and an act of God, guess what? Everything that happens is an act of God. Every food, piece of food that you eat that tastes good and you're like, wow, that's so delicious, that is God's kindness to you. That is in that Jesus is making your nerves enjoy that piece of food. Everything around us, we are living in a world that is charged with his authority. And, you know, I think that scientists actually are subtly aware of that. Because, you know, if we had a scientist, actually not a scientist, you ask any kind of modern person, you know, if I take this Bible and drop it on the ground, why does the Bible fall to the ground? We would say that the Bible is obeying the laws of gravity. The Bible is obeying the laws of gravity. Now, we say that all the time, but that's kind of an amazing statement. We're saying that, you know, like, I obey the, you know, we live in a society where that has laws, like, I got to drive the speed limit, and I obey the speed limit, or I'm driving 25 miles an hour. The Bible's kind of like that, that there is some law that the Bible is, that is telling the Bible what to do, and the Bible obeys it every time. And now what a scientist would say was that the law that the Bible is obeying is some math problem, some equation that um, the Bible adheres to every time I let go of it. But as Christians, what we would say is that the law that the Bible is obeying is Jesus Christ. He is the Lord over nature, 
and he orders all things and he commands all things that are held together and sustains them. And he, the reason this, you know, the, that the Bible falls the same way every time is because Jesus, tell, Jesus tells it to. He has ordered it that way. He commands it that way. And, um, and so that's what we read. When we read in verse 27, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Jesus is just showing in this passage what he does to every storm that's ever been calmed. The reason every hurricane has been calmed or windstorm has been calmed is because Jesus told it to stop, and it did, because he is holding all things together. He's the Lord of nature. And um, this is an incredibly uh, vast worldview of how we actually view the created world that we live in. And this is one of the most important steps is we, uh, in learning to deal with fear, is that we have to relearn how we view the very world, the physical world, the nature that we live in. Because the way that we've been taught to view it is that we're living in a giant mindless machine, impersonal machine that is just grinding along. And if you accidentally get caught in one of the cogs, it is uh, just ruthless and will tear you to shred, and, and, and no one cares. No one has any intention in it. And this is, that is a totally different worldview than the way that we see all things. Every event that happens in our life is by God's appointment and by God's care. And um, if we see the world as out of control and unpredictable, we'll be filled with fear. But the way that the Bible says, how do we, okay, if our fears mean that uh, people and events are very big in our mind, but God is very small, how does God become big in our minds and the events and the people in our lives become small? We must see him as the Lord of nature for who he is, that he is in control of all things. And um, it is by seeing that every detail is superintended by his powerful and authoritative and wise hand that um, our, our, our view of life is transformed. In every unexpected twist or disappointment in our life, we realize has been appointed by God. Everything that happens in our life has been appointed by God. Uh, or as you know, I've often said in the past, the world we are living in is a story where God is the author. We are not living in a machine that's grinding in a way. We are living in a story where God is the author. Okay? So the first aspect of Jesus' authority that we need to internalize in order to grow in the fear of the Lord instead of the fear of other things is we need to see that Jesus has authority over all of nature. But, um, of course, the natural question that goes with that first point is to say, okay, if God is superintending every detail in nature, uh, one of those details is the vast amount of evil that is present in the world. So if, uh, uh, if he, is he superintending that too? If all the evil in the world is, okay, Jesus is superintending, you know, my taste buds when I eat a waffle and, uh, or, you know, I was by you on the bay with my wife on a date last night, the gumbo with that, those spices. Jesus was superintending that, but what about the evil? What about the bad things? Um, well, it, it may be that Matthew was anticipating that question as we look at the next passage that we see that not only that Jesus has authority over nature, but Jesus also has authority even over evil. Um, and you see that in this second episode. Look, look at verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of uh, the Gadarenes, 
Two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the uh, demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, quick, by the way, you know, some of you read that, and you're like, what's the deal with the pigs? And the demons want to go in the pigs, and the pigs rush into the waters. I mean, the first answer is, I don't know. I mean, it's strange. The Bible says strange things. But one thing that we learn from that is that, uh, first of all, the Bible absolutely believes in demonic spiritual powers that are real in the world. Again, just like miracles, no one has disproved that there aren't, if, if there's a God, if there are angels, if there's a Holy Spirit, it's perfectly reasonable to think that there are evil personal powers at work in our world. But one of the things we learn about those uh, demonic powers is that they're parasites. They cannot live on their own. They need a host. And they want to live, you know, just like a parasite has to feed on something else that is living. These things are so, so full of death that they have to find some living thing to feed on. And so they say, fine, if you're going to cast, me out of, cast us out of these men, at least put us in the pigs. And then the pigs rush into the sea, and we get this great, what it really is is a picture of what Jesus is going to do when he comes in his second coming, and he's going to rid the world of all, e- all evil, and he's going to take all the evil, and he's going to throw it into the sea, and we're going to be free from all sorrow and evil. So it's just a, this is just a great picture of what, who Christ is and what his kingdom is going to do. But... There are two really fascinating things um, about what the demons say to Jesus um, that tell us about Jesus' authority over evil. Okay, so we learn a few things about Jesus' authority over evil. First of all, the demons acknowledged and obeyed Jesus' authority. It's It's fascinating. The demons obey Jesus. They have to listen to him. They have to do what he says. They make requests of him. They beg things of him. And... um, uh, they could only do what Jesus permitted them to do. And so just as the wind and the sea obey him, now actually demons actually obey him. So first of all, uh, the demons acknowledge his authority, but second, they also acknowledge that Jesus is their judge, right? Because they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? And so what we learn uh, is that somehow, in one way, Jesus is opposed to evil. They recognize, you're our enemy, you're going to judge us, you're here to get rid of evil. And yet, at the same time, they, um, they say that, that evil is actually playing a role in God's plan for a time. Right? You hear, you hear what they said there? Have you come here to torment us before the time? There's this measured, limited limit, you know, this limit that Jesus has put on what evil can do. It's working, he has purposes for it, and even the demons know that. They, um, and that evil is ultimately under his control. It is under his authority. And so what this means is that the way that Christians view evil in the world, it is not that good and evil are these equal opposites that are warring with each other. And Jesus is on the good side, and evil is on the bad side. It's actually that God has made all things, and he stands above good and evil. 
And Jesus is the judge that says these things are good and these things are evil. He's the one who's going to come at the end of the age and, and mark out and say these, this is good, this is evil. And so he stands above good and evil, and ultimately evil stands under his authority. And so, you know, of course, the supreme example of this in the scriptures is the book, is the book of Job. Um, and if you're not familiar with the book of Job, Job was a righteous man who had... He lost his, his family. He, lost, he was very wealthy. He lost all of his wealth, and uh, he got very sick. He had boils over his body. He was on the brink of death. He, he was just lost everything. And in the beginning of the book of Job, we get this insight into the spiritual world that it turns out that Satan, who had done all these things to Job, this evil, demonic one, had gone and asked God permission to go do these things. It was like he's one, not that he, you know, I wouldn't say he's God's servant, but he had to ask God, can I go do this? And it was all under God's authority, God's limiting, God's, uh, God's authority. And, and, and so as Job, all these things happened to him, and, you know, it's hard to rush to the end of Job. You know, you, you can't read it that way. You've got you to gotta kind of suffer with Job through the 38 chapters of him wrestling with his suffering. But at the very end, this is what, where uh, this is what Job says to God. He comes to terms with the fact that God, even God is the authority over all things, over all of nature, and even over all of evil. And this is what he says. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. What Job was learning is that the way that we live in a wild and violent and unpredictable world like ours is to, to fear the one who has authority over it all. And we say, I don't understand his ways. I don't understand what he, why he does the things that he does. But I know that he is not an equal opposite power to evil. He is the authority over all things. And he will judge evil in, in, in the coming time, and he will eventually make all things right. Um, this is deeply important part of our spiritual life, a deeply important truth of our spiritual life. Just uh, this last uh, Thursday at our home group, our, our home group is on every other week, we've been hearing about the life stories of the various people in our groups. And uh, Michael Papera and uh, Jen and Michael Papera were sharing their stories with us this week and uh, very moving stories from both of them. And, and Michael, we, we heard a lot about, you know, difficult things that he had gone through in, in his life. And, you know, he's an engineer, you know, so it's pretty matter of fact for most of, uh, most of the story. I mean, it was, you know, we really felt it, but we're like, you know. Uh, but he came to a, a recent story that, uh, if you don't know the Papers, they had five, they have five children. They had five children in five years, and uh, their youngest two are twins. And uh, their daughter, Lily, uh, was born with special needs. And um, when she was first born, uh, she wasn't eating. And uh, so they had to take her down into the NICU down in, at Children's in, in Seattle. And, and he was talking about and, and he was no more engineer as he began to talk about his daughter, Lily, who's just in tears. And uh, not that engineers can't be emotional, but, uh, the, uh, but um, it, this tenderness of a father to his daughter and how uh, deeply, and if, if you know Lily especially, she's just this precious girl. And, 
And, um, but he was talking about the whole time where they were preparing them, themselves that, that the Lord may take her. And um, as he was weeping over these things, he said, uh, these are the words that the Lord, as he went through that process, he said the Lord taught him to say, if you take her, I will still love you. To say to God, if you take her, I will still love you. Which is an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement of God's authority over all things. And yet saying, you are still good and I will still love you. You stand over good and evil. And the reality is, you know, uh, and, and you might say, yeah, but, but God saved his daughter. He didn't know that at the time. He was facing the very real reality. And, and let me just tell you, that is evil. The Bible says that en- death is an enemy of God. Je- we know that Jesus loves children. He said, let the little children come to me. So we know that, this is, this, that, uh, that death is an enemy of God. And yet coming to terms, that's a huge part of our spiritual reality, is coming to terms with the authority of of Christ over all, not just nature but even evil itself. Um, we must learn to tremble before God's almighty authority before we can stop trembling before uh, the fears of this world. Now, when I say that, that God is, has authority over all, Jesus has authority over all things, nature and even evil, um, some of you will feel deep down you know, what if God is just as wild and violent and unpredictable as the world we're living in? You know, what if I, you know, fear, to fear God, to say, I'm going to tremble before you and say you're the ultimate authority, that is a tremendous act of vulnerability. I'm saying I'm putting my, hand, my life into the hands of this powerful being. And what if he uses that power just the way the world uses the power? He's wild, he's unpredictable, he's violent, he's selfish, He's, he's hard, he's, hard. He's, uh, he's not compassionate. What if he's not those things? And what that, uh, well, that addresses uh, the last aspect of Jesus' authority. Because fear, the question of fear, ultimately comes down to two questions for us. And the two questions are, for one, is God powerful? And second, does he care? Is he good? Is God powerful and is he good? Because if he's just powerful but he's not good, I'm still going to be trembling and in fear. I don't know what he's going to do to me. But if he's just good, you know, he's a teddy bear, but he's got no power, then, you know, I can't trust in him. I can't put my life into his hands. So if I'm going to fear the Lord and stand before him and submit before his authority, I need to know both of these things, that he um, is both powerful but also. And, the, and those first two points, Jesus' authority over Nature, Jesus' authority over evil, those communicate to us his power. And so the last question is, but is God good? Is the God who has all authority and power, is he also good? And the answer in the Bible is a resounding yes. He is good. He can be trusted. And we see that in this last episode where we learn about Jesus' authority. He is someone that we can be vulnerable with. We can put our life into his hands um, he is one that we can um, rejoice with trembling before. And so this leads to our last point, not that Jesus, Jesus has authority over nature, Jesus has authority over evil, but last, Jesus has authority over love. And now, authority and love are not generally two things that we tie together. We think of authority as kind of dis- distance, 
you know, making commands of someone kind of hard, rule-oriented, hierarchical. But the reality is that some of the dearest, most tender love happens in the context of authority. I mean, I think of my relationship with my children. I, I, I'm, I have authority over their, in, their, in their life like no one else does, and yet, more than anyone else, I can speak deep words um, way down into their souls like no one else can. You know, that when I tell them that I see uh, God at work in their lives, I can see the Holy Spirit bring uh, the fruit of the Spirit into their life. I can see that God's growing faith in them. When I say to them, uh, you know, you're a good son, you're a good daughter, I love being your dad, and speak words of tenderness to them, they penetrate far more deeply than anyone else because I'm in a role of authority over them. The authority actually enables me to love them in profoundly powerful ways. And we look at how does Jesus use his authority in this passage. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed and came to his own city. And behold, some people uh, brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I love this. Jesus is you know, he's so odd. You know, these guys, are, they've traveled a long way. You know, they're carrying this bed. This is a lot of work. They get to the house. They say, Jesus, can you help us out? This is our friend. He's paralyzed. And he says, yeah, your sins are forgiven. And they're thinking, that's helpful. That's great. Uh, positive message. We were here about he can't walk. This is a real issue we're here about. And, uh, and yet Jesus doesn't... Jesus says he needs something that they didn't know he needed. There's something else that he needs. It's actually a greater priority than his paralysis, than his physical ailments, than the suffering that he's experiencing in his life. He needs to know what it is to have his sins forgiven. This is deeply powerful. And I love how Jesus says, take heart, my son. He's speaking like a father with that authority to his son and saying, your sins are forgiven. And... Um, Many of us need to learn from Jesus what our needs are. And it turns out that what our greatest need is, more than the things that we struggle with and suffer with in our life, Jesus is saying, you need to know that through me, despite all of your sins, despite the fact that you, have lived, you maybe have lived in rebellion against God, maybe you've, you've disobeyed God all the days of your life, you can come through Christ and be loved by God. You can be brought into his family. You can be cherished and delighted in by him. And you are not prepared to live in the world and to prepare for uh, the fears that you are going to face until you have come to the terms of that spiritual reality that in Christ, God loves me. He really loves me. He really loves us. And we're his children. If you've come to God in Christ, your sins are forgiven. This is... Uh, Jesus wants to use his authority to assure this man that God loves him and that he is in with God. He can be a part of God's family. And that's what he says in verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus even does this miracle um, uh, to show his authority that, that, God, that God has welcomed this man and that, he, and that God is good, that God is loving, he is tender, he is forgiving. He does cherish people. And so he's not just powerful, but he's powerful and he's good. And so we can put our lives into his hands. 
Um, and we need to each know that personally. And that's a question for each one of us. As we deal with our fears, do you know personally that your sins are very real, that God is a holy God, and yet in Jesus Christ, you are washed, you are forgiven, you're forgiven, you are delighted in. Do you know that personally? Do you know that not just as, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a part of a church, but that you've faced God and gone before him and known God really loves me? Um, that's the love of God. But, you know, the other thing about the, Jesus' authority over love is that he's welcoming. He's saying that God delights in us. But it's, love is not just a feeling. You know, it's, he's not just saying, you know, God has warm feelings towards you. Because what does he do? How does he confirm that this man's sins are forgiven? He raises him up. The man's paralytic. He heals him. And actually what this is, again, is a f- picture of what Jesus is going to do when he comes back, that if we are in Christ, the Bible says that what God did for Jesus when he raised him from the dead, he is actually going to do for all of us, that we are going to rise with him into an indestructible life. And that um, beyond... Um, Anything that we could imagine is almost too good to be true that we, he will raise us up and we will live with God forever and ever in uh, indestructible bodies, enjoying his presence, becoming who we have always meant to be. And Jesus says, listen, God doesn't just have warm feelings for you. He is going to save you. He is going to rescue you. And it's this combination of that God has accepted me and yet I have salvation. I have a hope. And when these two things live inside of me, and I know that God has authority over all things, is when I come before him and I begin to rejoice with trembling. It is when we rejoice before God with trembling that the fear of him begins to lessen and to shrink all the other fears that we wrestle with in our life. So as uh, Proverbs has famously said, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so uh, let us learn uh, to fear, to see the size of who Jesus is, the size of his authority, that we may tremble before him with rejoicing. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the great uh, truths we see here as we see our Lord's power and his goodness. Teach us to rest and your profound love, and your profound power. We thank you that you are our God. Teach us to walk in fear of you, to walk in awe of you. And we ask this in Christ's name.